Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Not Suitable for Utah podcast. I am Jeff Rich. I'm stationed here in Phoenix, Arizona. I'm joined in this particular format by my friend and colleague in Colorado, Shade Koenig. Shade, say a couple words, introduce yourself a little bit here. Um, uh, We have the state of Utah surrounded with people in Arizona, and then I'm in Colorado. We're converging in on Utah and talking about all the things that are from I would even say Cleveland and Ohio and Arizona and Colorado and Utah and everything in between. So happy you're joining us. Yeah, everything but the coast. You know, I once <laughs> dreamed of doing something, you know, having some kind of project. I don't think it was a podcast at the time. I think that it was a blog or a news site that was going to be like Beyond Bristol, where we just anti-ESPN because, uh, you know, for the longest time, I despised ESPN and I was like, why is, why do they have such a monopoly? Why is there no viable competition? And it's because the only real threat that was on board in the early 2000s, maybe the 2010s, was Fox Sports. And they decided to go with the the regional route and to be really off color with like the best damn sports show period. Yeah, I think that the best I think that the best that I saw was when ESPN started doing Around the Horn and Woody Page they would do with actual writers that were in certain cities and now it's just people that work for ESPN that they talk about regional stuff as well but I think a lot of stuff with our show and also with other folks there's a lot more uh, diversity out there so people can kind of pick and choose what they want instead of only going to one spot but yeah I think Fox Sports is still trying to climb that ladder in the or the mountain of ESPN and the money that they have and the advertising dollars they have and uh, trying to compete nationally. And maybe it would have been a better idea just to be regional and be able to take little tidbits away from them that other people weren't weren't used to digesting. I think that we're different, but the same in some ways. I think that you and I are, are both on the plus side of 30 and still big kids at heart. I, you know, I, I know that you've mentioned you like wearing the caricature T-shirts. And if yeah. I say jersey, I don't have to explain it to you, know exactly what I'm talking about. But, you know, you're the family guy and I am married, but I almost live a married lifestyle as bachelor and bachelorette in the, uh, <laughs> in, the in the form of, uh, you know, Mrs. and Mrs. Rich here in Phoenix, Arizona. Yeah, I think that there are. A lot of people that are in the media that are going to try to provide the hot take and flare up into the fires of people and, and get them all worked up. And I always think there's there's always a nuance to everything. And, and sports is definitely not void of that. There's so much nuance and and in between the big hot takes and the drastic ideas. And I think that you and I do a good job of almost mocking those. It's when people say something that's so drastic, it, both of us kind of roll our eyes and say, you're, you're just doing that to, to get the attention. It, it's not about whether or not you understand sports, appreciate it. It's, I want to say something so people get all worked up about it. And that I don't think that either one of us are that guy. It pisses me off so much about that around the horn thing. Because Max Kellerman sold it before it aired as we talk about what's happening in your area with you know, writers from your area. Yep. I never once saw a Cleveland writer as a panelist on Around the Horn. They try to keep it honest, you know, by having Woody Page stand in front of the Denver Post banner mm-hmm. and by having Kalashaw in front of the D- Denver Morning News. Now they have uh, ESPN graphics because they have ESPN employees mm-hmm. and all of the mutters from the regions. The call is coming from inside the house, basically, with ESPN. Yeah, I think that even... The idea that, hey, we're going to have NFL coverage with your local your local people from the NFL nation, which is cool that they have people that are specific for each team, but they're still ESPN employees. It's not like they're they're getting a real third party insider view from somebody that is on the beat every day from the from the newspaper. Um, if anything, they probably want to talk to bloggers that somehow have written for a local a website that still have press credentials and are at every practice, but it is, it really was when it first started with Woody Page being there and Kalashaw being there, especially with Woody Page. Woody Page was so plugged into Denver and was such the curmudgeon and old man type there that it was very entertaining. But 
he just works for the, I think he works for the ABC affiliate here and just does comment commentating on their sports show on like Saturdays. And that's it. That's what Mark, that's what, uh, you remember Mark May did the post game, you know, the post game show with, uh, uh, Lou Holtz and, I, I want to say Reese Davis. I, I think they, it was Reese it Davis, was, yeah. where Reese Davis uh, acted as judge, uh, and you had these mock trials between Mark May and Lou Holtz, uh, you know, because yeah. that's what everybody was pining for, I'm sure. Well, and, and the challenge with Around the Horn is, and the reason they have to use ESPN employees is that they were having writers, and there are less and less sports journalists and sports writers. The, they're cutting that budget and making it more regionalized, and um, going to bigger uh, entities, whether it be you know a, a gigantic publishing company that covers multiple cities with one or two sports writers, and they do you know kind of a, a story locally, but it's probably just the person doing three stories in one visit, or an ESPN writer, or a person that is in the area that writes for a website locally. There's just not many sports writers to choose from, so I think the around the horn format started falling to the wayside on it being more local because. There weren't any sports writers that were actually credentialed. You could be like, Woody Page used to be a sports writer. Let's get his opinion. Well, I'm not I'm not with the team anymore. I, I listen to the radio and watch TV just like you do. So I think that kind of killed that the idea of that show. Would it be fair to say maybe that regions aren't represented, but demographics are, you know, and that's, you know, absolutely what ESPN's been going for over the last couple of years, if not the last decade or so, or since their inception. I think the goal was always for, for ESPN, when you talk about how they started and what they were trying to do, and they were really were going for, you know, the big 18 to 40 male demographic. And that is still something that is their bread and butter. But once they were, purchased as part of the you know, ABC, ESPN, Disney purchase. Disney is the monster of demographics. They're going to be able to provide substantially more data and, and influence on what they think will get that demographic. But now it's starting to change. You know, there's more uh, diversity in the consumption and sports, and there's a lot more reaching out to female demographics. And, um, you know, they have Hispanic Culture Week, which was on Monday Night Football. That's ESPN and a Disney product. So I think that Disney is starting to expand out not only within age groups, but in uh, markets and understanding racial demographics and, and how they can appeal to that. And I think Disney is probably the monster that that started that and really started trying to pinpoint exactly what was liked by what people. And now they have you know ESPN Deportes and they have all of their ESPN Plus, you can do all sports for all different people, everything from cricket to soccer to smaller leagues in soccer and MLS, and they have baseball coverage. And I, I mean, I am shocked that they put so much effort into baseball. And now that they have hockey, it's it's uh, definitely a live sports, and that's what's driving that. But those two sports, it seems like you could kind of lose those and let you know, MLB and TBS have them and probably spend a little bit more money on NBA and NFL and take it from other people. You mentioned Latin heritage and, you know, that's where I kind of stopped and internally chuckled, not at the, uh, at the young man himself, but I, I believe it was Vance Joseph's uh, first game as the head coach of the Denver Broncos. And you had this uh, young reporter from ESPN Deportes, I, I believe, uh, who did this report on Vance Joseph having the time of his life. And that was Denver. But uh, fast forward to the present day, he's the defensive coordinator for the Arizona yeah. Cardinals. And I'm suddenly not hearing the fire Vance Joseph chants that I've been hearing over the last year or so. Oh yeah. You know, probably longer than that because it's working in Arizona Cardinal land. Cliff Kingsbury hired himself a Lieutenant that knows what he's doing. And of course the GM has just done nothing but feed that side of the ball. The GM by the name of Steve Kime. When there are moves made, when you have a player that is of national recognition, even if it's not for, um, really being known for recent history. I think that a lot of times when a, a GM lets Patrick Patterson go, it's like, oh, Patrick Patterson, that's a big name, big name, big name. 
and they know that he's a pro bowler and that he was, I think, first team all pro. If not, he was definitely uh, one of the top vote getters in the pro bowl and a, and a top defensive player. But in his last two years there, he wasn't meeting the salary expectations and he was just a slightly above average quarter. And I think that's always difficult and that there's when that happens and then you know that Cliff Kingsbury has this offensive system that puts more pressure on a defense and how are they going to make up for that? And uh, man, they're, they're losing close games, even though their offense is just killing people and they need to get better. And I think there's still going to be a little bit of a waiting period because the other shoe's going to drop, especially with Chandler Jones. Uh, Vance Joseph might be really good, but Chandler Jones is what's making that team, um, especially on the defensive front with JJ Watt and other players, that's what's stirring that drink and, and making them effective. And he wants out or he wants a contract extension. And I don't think that the Cardinals have proven that they're willing to pay top dollar for almost anybody. All right. Uh, we can skip the rear view look back at last week. Uh, the Browns with an underwhelming performance, but hey, I'll take it in a win. And Kansas City, I'll, I'll leave it open for your commentary and we could uh, – look ahead to Buffalo at Kansas your, your assessment of the Browns game applies to a certain extent to the Chiefs game, but the score wouldn't make it like underwhelming. But I, I mean, the offense did what it needed to do. Everybody was, everybody's playing two high safeties. Edwards Hilaire ran for over a hundred yards again for the second week in a row and didn't fumble the ball. They were almost dinking and dunking the whole game and then killing them with Tyreek Hill throughout the game when, when the opportunity arose. But again, the defense made the Eagles look like everybody thinks Jalen Hurts is in the top five in the MVP vote because he just killed the Chiefs, which isn't shocking. It's gotten bad enough to me for me that I start texting my my friend and I'm like, okay, dream scenario. Move Chris Jones into the interior. Jerron Reed gets less playing time. Sign Geno Atkins and then get Jalen Smith and then trade for Stephon Gilmore. Never mind. Forget Stephon Gilmore. He's gone. Jalen Smith and Geno Atkins are our new run-stopping combo. I mean, it's just they need to do something. The The defensive front, especially in the middle of the line, is subpar best, and you moved your best interior defensive lineman to to outside, and, and that didn't make sense, and, and Jaron Reed has not been effective in any way, shape, or form, whether it be pressures up the middle or, or stopping the run, and and that was their big defensive line help. Um, so they need to figure something out and, and, and quick. It's not live radio like we have been accustomed to doing for the last couple of years and after you know, or prior to a hiatus uh, sometime before that as well. But, you know, sometimes the, the news presents itself right in front of me as we speak. And I, I just I'm just now reading that the Packers are the team that uh, went after Jalen Smith in free agency. So <sighs> Stefan Gilmore, gone. Jalen Smith, gone. Jalen Smith, J- gone. No one, No one wants Wait. Geno Atkins. I mean, come on. I don't know. It's. It, I, I don't think they're going to make any moves. I think that people believe that the defensive system that Steve Spagnuolo runs takes time for people to learn, and that eventually Jerron Reed will get it. I think they need to move Chris Jones to the interior and develop Mike Dana and spell him with Alex Okafor and, and see what happens. I think that there needs to be something done on that front. I'm not sure Nick Bolton is ready for the role that he's trying to play. He looks lost at times, and he's definitely not doing what's needed to stop the run. Um, so I, if they don't figure that out, I t- my friend tells me all the time, it'll be fine, the offense is going to get better, and they got Josh Gordon. I'm like, everybody is way more confident in this team's ability to stop somebody than I am because they have the same players as last year, but they're a year older, and they let the other team score touchdowns 77% of the time in the red zone. Touchdowns, not field goals. And this year it's like 85%. You can't, you can't win a Super Bowl when everybody is starting to figure out your offense a little bit. And it's actually putting more pressure on the defense to make stops than it has in previous years. And and I don't I don't have confidence that it's gonna happen. I didn't get to watch much. I we tailgated our Browns Vikings game with a uh a, a setup that really just says twenty twenty one out loud. 
we had a about a 24 inch TV <laughs> that we uh, you know had on a cooler that was plugged you know uh, at the you know the TV not the cooler was plugged into an inverter that we were running into the car and uh, we bought an adapter. We decided that we needed this adapter on Friday when I landed in Texas, and it was on our doorstep on Saturday morning, and we were able to use it to run an HDMI connection for my iPhone via the Sunday Ticket app and watch Browns Vikings in the parking lot of a Six Flags across from not only the new Rangers ballpark, but also the old one, and a little further off towards the horizon, the Dallas Cowboys Stadium, but uh, Six Flags Amusement Park with roller coasters going in the background, <laughs> and we're the assholes that are sitting under a tree in the corner watching, a, you know, crowded around a 24-inch TV, watching a football game and drinking Yingling. There is nothing wrong with that, and you will remember it, and it's a great tailgating experience. Um, too bad the game wasn't a little more entertaining, but they got the W. I remember people always talk about tailgating, and I remember being in college, and one of the greatest tailgating feats I've ever seen in my life was somehow one of my fraternity brothers found a gas-powered. Basically, idea is that someone took the handlebar, created handlebars of a gas-powered blender, and to make it go faster, it had handlebars on the side, and to make it go faster you turn the handlebar so when you were making margaritas, it was like, and you were blending the margaritas, and then you poured it, and then the next person made their drink. And I was like, I, when I get older, I'm going to own one of those. I don't know why, but I need a gas-powered, handlebar-accessible, and powered blender just for tailgating. I like the tailgate. I, I was I always kind of looked at it sideways because I was like one of these like obnoxious sports purists, and you know I just be like you know fuck off with your party. <laughs> I, I'm here to watch the game, and now it, you know it's what's more important to me. I mean, I was just telling somebody on my local show this week that I'm not an Ohio State fan. I, I'm a, a fan of the yeah. game. I don't really care that much about. Arizona State, I like going to the home games because they're 15 minutes down the road. They're a $22 lift ride back home if I, you know, I should need the assistance in transportation. And I'm going to have... I'm going to have a fucking blast on Friday night and I'm going to act like a goddamn teenager drinking in a tent with a bunch of uh, other, you know, other people wearing yellow shirts, you know, wearing that same laundry to support the uh, college football team, you know, the 18 to 23 year olds that are playing in the stadium adjacent to our little party. College football is so enjoyable that my wife, who went to University of Northern Colorado, um, did not have a D, yeah, Go exactly. Bears. A D1 uh, football program, and she went to a few games. And I went to University of Missouri, and the whole time I was there, they were terrible. But every game was sold out um, for football, and they had a good basketball team. And when uh, we got married, I told her my dream is to someday own a mini Winnie and drive to two Missouri home games a year and one sec away game and she didn't even like bat an eye she's like yeah let's do it and so we'll be driving down the street and see a winnebago and she's like there it is babe there's the dream so college football man it, it draws you in it, it's such an enjoyable experience most places that you're going to go just the camaraderie of it and like you said it's it sounds silly because it's not you're not an athlete but it is about um not you and, and your enjoyment of necessarily um, a team. It is about the laundry. It's about the experience and the Ohio State, not even football team, but the Ohio State overall um, team or Arizona overall experience. And um, going up to Boulder, it's uh, I usually get to go to one game a year with a friend of mine that has season tickets, and we tailgate, and their tailgate experience is terrible. It's like sectioned off and in everywhere but near the stadium and the best places I've ever been to where university of Hawaii has a crazy tailgate experience because Hawaii as a whole knows how to potluck. Everybody brings amazing food together. You have Hawaiian dishes, you've got barbecue, you've got burgers, you've got beer, and they have a huge parking lot right outside of their stadium. 
And then, of course, Kansas City has um, two stadiums and enough parking for both of them to fill it and nothing else around their stadium. So it's either you tailgate or you show up to the game and then you leave right after because there's nothing else to do around there. But their tailgating is fantastic as well. I really wish that I could have made the opener. It just wasn't in the cards, to, you know, to go to that week one game between the uh, Chiefs and the Browns, which, you know, it's not going to happen a lot. I mean, I'm curious if this podcast will intersect with the Browns and the Chiefs playing each other more than one time, which, uh, you know, speaks to the potential longevity <laughs> of where we're going with this and to, uh, you know, how, how much fate brings those two football teams together. Uh, you know, if they start playing first place schedules, they're going to see each other every year in the regular season. And, you know, and that's kind of a coin flip, whether they see each other in the playoffs or not. I think that they, well, I actually think the Browns right now with the way that they're playing and winning without, a ton of production from any major wide receiver um, would indicate that if they can get that production, they're going to be highly successful and the chiefs offense is fantastic and their defense is terrible. So um, we'll see. I think that they're, I think they're both going to be playoff bound, but I think the Broncos or the Browns will probably have a better seed. Are the Steelers actually dog shit? Am I calling the fight too early to, you know, declare any level of happiness <laughs> about the actual Steelers demise? There are times when we think that, you know, the, the Steelers are done and Duck Hodges comes in and Mason Rudolph plays and they go eight and eight. And it's like, okay, well, that's not really a demise. To them, it, it's uh, an unsuccessful year, but it's still. Uh, above 500, which is or, or um, at 500, which is what Mike Tomlin has done every year that he's ever been there. But if you look at even before they go 11 and 0, and then they have a drop off at the end of the year, and then a terrible playoff performance and get eliminated early, there were so many questions going into the season, and most of them were not about offense. It was okay, we lost Bud Dupree. Okay, do we have enough talent? built around TJ Watt that he's going to be someone that we can rely on and build around. He's a, a stupendous player and that's what they were going to do. Hey, we're going to build around our defensive front. That's going to be our identity. Our offensive line is all new, put together with different pieces from everywhere. Uh, we have a ton of turnover on the offensive line. We have a quarterback that needs a ton of protection to be able to get the ball to anybody down the field. And we're not going to be able to provide that. So how are we going to do that? We're going to get Najee Harris. Well, all of the things that pointed to them having any moderate success have not been successful. And TJ Watt's injured. And they don't have enough talent around him to be really good on defense like they would like to be. And their offensive line is as bad as they had not hoped for. And Ben Roethlisberger is a statue. He can't run out of tackles. And now he's been nicked up in two of the games saying like, if you would see my hip, it would make you throw up or it hurt your stomach. It's like, bro, that's a hernia. Like, why are you playing with a hernia? And more importantly, what do you have on your bench that a bruised hip, bruised pectoral muscle, 38 year old quarterback that is immobile and can't throw it further than 10 years, 10 yards is your best option. That is a bad group of decisions throughout the year, years. So, yes, I think they're done. Do you ever listen to the Dan Levitard show? No, I yeah, I really didn't. You know what? I think that I was introduced to him as, you know, he you know, he pissed all over Cleveland when LeBron went there. And I just said, you know, I don't need to listen to this <laughs> Miami turd. Yeah, they, they are very much. They have. So now they they left ESPN or ESPN asked them to go or whatever. But when what they did is they negotiated, they got to keep like 95% of their ideas because Dan had highly questionable and he was like, I can take this with me. And they wanted to keep it. So they, because he had that leverage, he left and they, he started his own media company with John Skipper from ESPN. And so it's called metal arc media. And, uh, they have a local hour and then they have three hours of like national bigger stories. And, but they, they don't do all sports all the time, but it's hilarious because Dan Levitard is 
nuance. Like he understands how he understands how it works when you uh, how sports can be a part of society, how it interacts with society, how it does all of those things. And then there's Stugatz. So do you know what Stugatz is in Italian? Isn't it like penis? It's like nutsack. Well, his real name is John Wiener. So they call him Stugatz because other people don't know that Stugatz basically means Wiener. So rather than call him the Dan Levitard with John Wiener, they call him Dan Levitard with Stugatz. And uh, he is the, like fan that just has an opinion that doesn't support it with anything so the two of them together are hilarious and they have john amici do you remember john amici in the nba days he was like he's super educated like he went and got like a master's in psychiatry and he's like on the almost like the uh english government board of uh like psychiatric evaluation like he the the government goes to him and asks him questions about how this would affect kids and families and stuff like that. They have him listen to Stu Gotts say words and then try to tell him, he tries to tell them what the words are. And Stu Gotts does that all the time where he just goes, and he's like, that was invaluable. And John Amici is like, what the hell is he talking about? That doesn't even sound like a word. He just like mushes words together because he's so wants to get it out so quickly that he just mushes things together. It's hilarious. A super educated guy trying to figure out what a, a dumb sports fan representative is trying to say. It's amazing. So this is the John Amici that uh, played at Penn State and came out after yeah, his career. The, the guy that Carl uh, Malone wanted to take under his wing, and then when he found out he was gay, wasn't sure that he knew who he was anymore. My favorite athlete, the most insensitive black man of all time. Oh yeah. shit! I mean, it was the same thing when he was—he was didn't know it. Nobody knew anything about AIDS, and he was afraid that Magic Johnson was gonna like sweat on him and give him AIDS. And he said it out loud. And it's like, oh my god, you're such a moron. It's one thing if you believe that, but just keep your mouth shut. This was before or after uh, Dream Team. After Dream Team, because he was Dream Team, and then it was. AIDS, and then it was he came back for the All Star game. Remember how he retired, and then the season began, but they gave him an honorary spot on the All Star game, and he played one last All Star game, not even as an active player. And that's when they asked, they he goes, when he goes on a fast break, I'm not sure, you know, if I if I'm allowed to foul him or is he going to give me AIDS? And it's like, oh my gosh, you're so stupid. And not not only that, but Magic Johnson got AIDS for having multiple sex partners. And now that Carmelo is older and has three kids out of his own marriage, maybe he should have evaluated what was going on and been like, eh, he got this. I should probably get tested. Anyway. God, what's uh, the Boston basketball player from Maryland that they drafted and he died like the day of the draft from a drug overdose? Yes, that's, talk about tragic, dude. That would be like that's like if Carmelo Anthony was gonna got drafted, and they're like the next day he died of a drug overdose because he was gonna be that. He wasn't LeBron, but he was supposed to be the next great transition from for the Celtics to be their their next big star, and then he dies of a drug overdose. Well, and they were losing to the Lakers in the finals at mm -hmm. at that point, and this is about the time that the Detroit Pistons end up taking over the East for a little bit, and then of course, it, you know, the league belongs to Michael for the next yeah. decade. But uh, you know, it, it could have been a shift. I, I mean, you know, they draft him in '86. Uh, did they lose to the Rockets in '87 or or the Lakers? I know that the, you know that Boston went from you know '86 to '08 without having a championship. So there were some years that they made it you know just to the you know just about to the finish line, but couldn't yeah, cross it. Yeah, it's crazy how that stuff just like changes an entire franchise. And I mean, even like I look at you look at tragedy like that and it's so crazy how it, it molds um, policy and it molds the way that the league looks at stuff. Leagues look at things like, have you, did you ever read the book, the punch by John Feinstein? 
It's so it's like it takes a punch from Kermit Washington, punches Rudy Tomjanovich, shatters his jaw and his and his orbital bone, and then it's like almost like everything in that thing put people's life in different trajectories. Like Kermit Washington was supposed to be the next great player for the what was it the Bucks I think, and then he he punches. Rudy Tomjanovich gets suspended and his career never goes anywhere. Rudy Tomjanovich is an average player, gets punched, and then retires but becomes a championship-winning basketball coach. It's pretty It's pretty interesting. It's a really interesting parallel that they make of one occurrence and how it changed so many people's lives. And no one even died. Um, but it, like a perfect example is um, Calvin Murphy. People kind of knew that he was feisty. And then he got involved in that fight and then people just labeled him as a thug that he was like just a thug and, and wasn't going to do anything else important all because of that one fight. So talk about, and no one even died and it wasn't that tragic. So talk about how things can change franchises and people in the league. And that was just a fight. The malice at the palace. Yeah. I think that, I think that we've kind of come full circle on, you know, how we view Ron Artest. I think that we look at him as less of a drag on society and more a victim of, you know, the, the mental issues that plague a lot more people than I think that most of us were fully aware of, you know, maybe just a half a decade or 10 years. I mean, the the Netflix documentary that Jermaine O'Neal is producing and the first one was The Malice of the Palace and he said, this is the truth, but it was all player opinions and but that was a huge part of it was it was a very interesting transition of how Jermaine O'Neal is a well-educated private school educated coming out of high school a well-spoken player was developing 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 and then Mouse of the Palace happens and they label all the all of them thugs and Jermaine O'Neal's like I've never been in trouble in my life I don't even understand where that would come from or that idea came from or and he blames Ron Artest. He like Ron Artest went into the locker room and was like, "Do you think we're gonna get in trouble for this?" And Jermaine O'Neal's like, "We're you better be happy if we even have a job, let alone uh, are we gonna get in trouble for this?" And they they just started reconciling. Like they started talking, and he's like, "I feel awful that I isolated him and made him feel like." This is more his fault than anybody else's when he needed someone to constantly supervise and watch him to make sure he wasn't hurting himself. And the Pacers knew there was something odd, but there wasn't enough like, I don't say data, but it did, wasn't common knowledge that how do you support a person like this and get them to help to kind of regulate their, their issues. They just had someone constantly with them to make sure he wasn't doing something that would hurt himself or hurt the franchise. Wasn't Reggie Miller trying to be that advisor in real time? Yes. They they talked about how, you know, Reggie Miller would try to talk to Ron Artest and Ron Artest would just like blow him off. And it wasn't even like he didn't want the help. He just really didn't understand what was happening and like what Reggie Miller was trying to do. He just kind of glazed over the fact that it was uh, a veteran that was trying to reach out and help a, a younger player. He just didn't, he didn't think there was anything wrong with the, his behavior, but he was super, super depressed and super had super mental health issues. Have you heard the Best Buy story with Ron Artest? No. Okay, so uh, in the summer of 1999, uh, Ron Artest was looking to make a little bit of money on the side, apparently, and he had applied to work a you know a clerk position. At Best Buy, and you know, you might wonder how this got out into the atmosphere. It was because the Bulls found out because he listed the Chicago Bulls <laughs> as a reference on his Best Buy resume or on his Best Buy application, and Best Buy called the Chicago Bulls to verify employment, and you know, it got nipped in the butt, obviously, but that was. Uh, you know, that was the type of person that Ron Artest was coming out of, uh, you know, coming out of college, very raw and, you know, being a raw human being to boot. He, the funny thing about Ron Artest is that Ron Artest, when he's playing, he was an asset and was a good player. 
but he was more, and you could say the same thing about Jermaine O'Neal too. That team with, um, that the Pacers had would have been in today's league, the positionless best team. They had Jermaine O'Neal. What position do you play? Uh, yes. I play a four, a five, sometimes the three. And Ron Artest could develop a halfway, developed a halfway decent jump shot, played amazing defense. Could be, he would be like a small ball power forward at this point. And they, those two guys would have been perfect for the positionless NBA that the way it is now. Those types of teams didn't win back, you know, back in their time. It's like Dan Marino was born in the wrong era. You know, Marino was born into an era where we were still playing three yards in a cloud of dust football. <laughs> and and he would have been perfect in today's game where you could throw it 50 times. He would, And everybody talks about how people beat his numbers, but if you put him in today's, his quick release and the way he got rid of the ball in today's league, he would have he would have blown out numbers that Tom Brady is putting up now and, and Drew Brees put up and Peyton Manning put up. He would have been fantastic. And that was – Dan Marino was – early in my understanding of football, but he was incredible that no one could uh, really get to him. It was, he hardly ever got sacked and always had a quick release and fast trigger. And he kind of ushered in that, that era. Um, But even like his draft class, like Jim Kelly and John Elway weren't throw it all the way all around. They had, John Elway eventually did get a running back that helped him win a championship, and Jim Kelly had Thurman Thomas, so um, they were still more run, uh, a little more run based. But those that whole draft class with that those three guys made uh, a transition to a more pass happy league. Possible with Dan Marino was definitely at the forefront of that. I always think that Dan Marino, when people talk about the best of all time, just from my under, limited understanding of football when I was that age, I always thought he was one of the best quarterbacks I'd ever seen. He was fantastic. Uh, I, I would say Montana was up there, but there wasn't much company because you looked around the NFC. You know, you, you think about it. Williams, Phil Sims, you know, Hostetler won a Super Bowl <laughs> for the Giants. You know, there were a lot of you know, a lot of quarterbacks that weren't sensational that didn't you know bring a lot of flash. And I would say that Troy Aikman is among them. I think that Troy Aikman was just you know, like Emmett Smith, you know, the beneficiary of just tremendous talent all the way around. But you know, obviously Aikman had to have something to do with it because, you know, you couldn't do that with Babe Laufenberg or with Jason Garrett, you know, as a uh, young player there at the end of the nineties. So uh, it had to be Aikman and Irvin had to be there in his prime and you had to have the compliments, you know, plus Jay Novacek and, you know, a defense that got after the quarterback and didn't give the points right back after the offense. put them Well, on I always court. think that quarterbacks are the, the, I would say middle management, but you know, your coach has to be able to, to associate with a bunch of different players. And then your quarterback needs to make sure that all types of personalities from a Michael Irvin to an Alvin Harper to a Jay Novacek to anybody else that came into um, that team that he balanced out those personalities, especially when you talk about Michael Irvin and you talk about Emmett Smith. I mean, it, especially Michael Irvin had such a huge personality, wanted the ball all the time, um, deserved to have the ball, but then Emmett Smith is an all-time great too. So I think that his greatest attribute was being an incredibly balanced performer, but also being able to mesh different personalities and be the leader of that group that had the ball in his hands on every snap and be able to distribute that and make that offense great. Let me throw a tandem at you that was not ultimately successful in the category of winning and losing, but uh, could you imagine like a Rodney Pete, Barry Sanders, RPO type of offense, you know, with just, uh, you know, capable receivers, maybe not superstars around them. And then a, you know, obviously competent offensive line to, you know, make the whole thing. I think you could literally make it probably what it was a discussion at that point. What if you just had a competent offensive line that allowed Barry Sanders to hit a hole and go, I mean, would he have retired as early as he did 
Or would he have been like, I could do this all, I could do this another five years. Uh, it, it always, I remember watching Barry Sanders and, and like I said, I didn't play football, but watching, are, is no one blocking these guys? Like all they're doing is running around and, and this one guy seems to be just better than everybody else. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we talk about it here and I, I don't, I don't want to talk about the buffs because I don't really know that much about them, but the color of Buffaloes, man, I, I watch a, a game with my friend and he's always like, why don't you watch the game and tell me your opinion? And they've got this freshman quarterback because they're transitioning from a different kind of coaching regime from two years ago. And then the middle of last year was the first year, but they transitioned late to actually having a recruiting class and, and doing what they need to do. And they got this kid from, I think, California and man, he's good, but he is so raw on his throws. And they have three top running backs, like their running back one Pac-12 Offensive Player of the Year last year, and they do not run RPO at all. They're making this kid throw 20 times a game when they have three really good running backs that can make a difference. And it's just not being able to see what you have and trying to force round peg into a square hole and i don't even know if that would have been i feel like they if you would have said run pass option you would be reinventing the wheel but being able to have an athletic quarterback and a great running back that a defense has to make a constant decision on seems to make sense but uh evidently like they were behind their time i guess instead of being ahead of their time they they didn't try something new that would have made their best all-time player even better that just seems to be Colorado's mo. They at the quarterback <laughs> position that we're gonna throw, we're gonna throw these high school kids at the wall and see which one sticks. And I can remember this going back to here's here's a name drop, Safo Leofau, the freshman quarterback, circa I want to say 2013, maybe 2014 for the Buffs, and you know that was during a, a long drought for. Colorado football. It's it's still a long drought. The drought hasn't ended. It seemed like they turned a little bit of a corner. I, I I couldn't tell you what year it was, but it feels like it was more recently than it was you know far away. Well, the the hard part is is they got. Now I'm not going to remember his name. So they had Embry, and then uh, well they had Dan Hawkins and they were terrible. And then they had Embry and Embry and Eric Bieniemy was the offensive coordinator. And they had no financial backing of anybody, and the AD didn't put any effort into it. And then now the AD from USC used to be the AD at CU, and Embry and BNME got fired, and they brought in – crap, I don't even remember who it was. And he said, I'll, I'll be the coach, but we need to redo facilities. Like, I need a commitment. They, he literally had it in writing that they would spend a certain amount of money – for the five, like three or five year contract that he had. And they built a new practice facility and they redid a lot of the stadium. And so it's more up to standards. And then they got the, who's the Michigan state coach, the Georgia, former Georgia assistant. He came in and he was there for one year and they went to Michigan state. Now Michigan state's a top 10 program. So they did turn a corner. I think that, I think that Carl Durrell has a chance here. Carl Durrell was okay at UCLA. I think that any coach that is at CU needs to be able to appeal to players that are from California that appreciate a calmer atmosphere. CU is a laid-back campus. That's the reason they didn't have financial backing, is that people in the community are like, eh, football really isn't that valuable to us. So, I mean, if they, if you can get, I mean, that's what, when, when McCartney was coaching, that's what he did is he went to Texas and California and got kids that wanted to play away from home, but they didn't want to be in a big city. And he got all of those kids that got out of Texas, got out of California and got top recruiting classes. I just don't know if ACU will ever have the real top notch facilities that even their pack, the pack 12 associate you know, cohorts have. And I, I just don't know if that community cares enough about football to support it. I think that's the challenge with Missouri. I think that they, they want to be in the uh, top half of the, of the sec East, but I'm not sure anybody in Missouri cares enough. They don't even sell out sec games. And when I went there, 
they were terrible and we sold out every game and it was completely packed every night. So I think that they have a challenge of the community just doesn't care about what the football product looks like. I don't think they care enough about the basketball product. I think Tad Boyle is a great coach and the athletics in that city are, are not something that they get behind. And it's a, it's a very prestigious town with a, a college, not a college town. And I think that's a challenge. I think that there are many here in the Valley that would make that same argument for Tepe and the sad attendance at the Arizona State football games. Uh, before I forget to circle back to it, uh, Mel Tucker. Mel Tucker, uh, thank you. Former Cleveland born. And he, uh, you know, coached at Ohio State, coached for the Cleveland Browns uh, back in the Romeo Cornell days. And like you said, uh, he was at Georgia. He, he was at Colorado. Uh, and uh, I mean, he was the defensive coordinator for the Chicago Bears uh, back in 2013 and 2014. But uh, Michigan State, that's tough to jump around, jump from region to region as a college coach. And I would think that. You know, this Urban Meyer thing, I think that it's going to be put to bed at some point with, uh, you know, the him to USC. I just don't see it. Um, yeah, Urban Meyer, I don't. I, I feel differently. I, always, I felt when they hired Urban Meyer at Jacksonville and his out of touch, he is the epitome of a college coach that whose success overshadows true what's truly going on in a program. It's a, I don't want to make it a parallel because it's a much worse situation, but it was the same thing with Joe Paterno. Paterno is winning. He is Penn state. He can do no wrong. And behind the scenes, he did a lot wrong. And, and the wrong is, uh, I don't want to get involved with that, but you have a responsibility to that community and to people that you need to um, be responsible and be able to say, this is right. This is wrong. We need to change some things here. And, when he's in Florida, he had the you know the bastion of college quarterbacks in Tim Tebow, but everything else behind him was was crap and and bad people um, doing bad things. He goes to Ohio State and um, builds a program there and, and has success. But um, Ryan Day is doing the same thing, and it seems to be a better atmosphere. And when you when you're in Jacksonville, you are not the top dog. You don't get a say in everything. Then and all the players are paid, maybe not better than you, but there are players that are getting paid a lot of money that don't have a loyalty to Jacksonville. They're contract workers, and the fact that you were so tone deaf that you hired a coach that got fired because of his communication with African American players and and the tone deafness of his attitude toward those players, and you didn't think that would be an issue, and your response was, "Oh, I talked to him about it. It's fine." Like that's silly. Like that should have been a red light that, or a red flag, or a red light that this guy is not a leader of a of a of a professional team. He's the leader of of boys and and people that don't know any better and think that they can utilize his connections to get to the next level in their career. The NFL players are at that level of their career. They don't need Urban Meyer to get them there. They're already there. They're already getting paid. I thought he was going to be done after one year when they hired him. And when that first part of hiring a strength and conditioning coach and the tone deafness of that, I was like, he's going to be there for one year. And I wouldn't be shocked if something else pops up now that everybody's watching that if they keep losing and he mismanages things that they're going to be like, mm, we got to move on. We need, we need someone else to fill in and we'll find another coach next year because they don't have a whole lot of talent to build around other than the quarterback. Shane, are you eager to include amongst your SEC road trips in the mini winnie <laughs> to go to Norman, Oklahoma or to Austin, Texas, or are there other SEC sites that you'd uh, prefer to prioritize? Well, we, we've talked about it before on, on other, on our radio show and it's been recorded for uh, posterity's sake. I always wanted Missouri to go to the big 10, so that my mini winnie trips would be shorter. So yes, I would be happy to go to Oklahoma, which is 12 hour, 10 to 12 hour drive from Colorado. 
and Austin, Texas. They have flights into Austin. So I've never liked Texas. I don't even know why I don't like Texas. I just haven't. And I think it actually, my favorite college player at and pretty much any time was, it's kind of a dual thing, but it's Chase Daniel and then Brad Smith because Brad Smith helped recruit Chase Daniel. And the reason that I love Chase Daniel is, is that Gary Pinkle was Gary Pinkle to Chase Daniel, and that got him to come to Missouri. He re- recruited him. Chase Daniel wanted to play at Texas. Mac Brown was the head coach, and they offered him a scholarship and then went back to him and said, hey, we're not going to be able to honor this scholarship. We're, we're going to have this kid, Ryan Perilou, come be our quarterback. We offered him a scholarship. Sorry, we have to let you go. And the only coach that kept up with him and just asked him, Hey, is there any questions you have? Is there anything you need? You're a great kid. If you need anything, let me know. He called Gary Pinkle, signed a letter of intent like the next week. And I think he's the best Missouri quarterback that I've ever seen. And he, that's why he's my favorite college football player that I've ever seen is because he led that program into places it had never been before. So I always thought that that was kind of, I, all, everybody does it. But knowing that story and, and how they treated him, and I've just never been a big Texas guy. I think they're more overrated than they are properly rated, and and uh, we'll see what Steve Sarkeesian can do. But Austin, I, if I wanted to go to Austin, I would just go to Boulder. It's like the same town. And better weather. Exactly. <laughs> the the football team isn't cared about as much in Boulder, but yeah. Let me say something since you brought up Gary Pinkle. I have a, through, through several degrees of uh, separation, a connection to Gary Pinkle. And I, you know, I was re- recently recommended that I follow the GP Made page yeah. on Facebook, uh, which is uh, Gary Pinkle's foundation. Uh, th- I have a very good friend out here that is originally from Toledo and uh was you know his childhood and lifelong friends with uh, one of Pinkle's sons, and uh, you know was very close uh, with uh, you know the, the Missouri program through that uh, family connection. Though he went to uh, Bowling Green and he roots for Michigan because he grew up in Toledo. But uh, I, I appreciate that connection. You know, kind of you know kind of brings the uh, you know the privileged world you know into my own. And um, I, I I gotta say that. I think that feels kind of cool it's sometimes. It's pretty I, – I love Gary Pinkle. I had – there were so many uh, little opportunities where I was a broadcast journalism major working at the television station that the University of Missouri owned, which happened to be the K, the NBC affiliate in Columbia, Missouri, and they did the coaches' shows. So I got a chance to talk to Quinn Snyder, who now coaches the Utah Jazz, and you get to chat and listen to Gary Pinkle um, a little bit, and he's – such a cool dude. He is the literal, uh, the epitome of, I, I trust my son with you. And, and you feel like even when you just talk to him, that he is all about taking care of his, his athletes and making sure that they're good people. And the fact that he grew Missouri's program into what they were and where they are now, um, is a direct reflection of his attitude towards his players and the love that he had for them. And I think everybody after him is didn't realize that, uh, oh, Gary Pinkle at the University of Missouri, I mean, it, it can't be that big of a deal. What is everybody talking about? And then they realize as they move along that he cast a very long shadow there. And, I mean, even uh, Odom re- replaced Gary Pinkle. He was Gary Pinkle's defensive coordinator and then came in and, and struggled a lot to to fill those shoes, and he was there for three to four years of of defensive uh, coordinator side for Jerry Pinkle. So it, they're tough shoes to fill. Incredibly enough, he didn't seem like he was the most dynamic personality, but man, when when he talked to players and was doing recruiting, especially in Texas, he got some really good players out of Texas and away from Texas and Texas A and M. That's impressive recruiting. I think that that's a tough conference to recruit. You know, that would have been a tough conference to recruit back in, you know, its original Big 12 stature, uh, you know, especially because everybody's going into Texas. But, you know, you have Tech, you have Baylor, uh, you know, you have UT, and, you know, back in the day, A&M. And, the, you know, those are all those 
schools all have a stronghold, maybe Baylor to a much lesser extent, and even Texas Tech to a lesser extent than the Big Two. But, uh, you know, Texas is a place that you love going to play your bowl games because you can recruit down there. Yes. You love playing those teams on the road, but you want them to come back up to to Columbus, Ohio, to Madison, Wisconsin, to Ann Arbor, Michigan. Well, and then even if you look at uh, you could tell Gary Pinkle and even coaches do this all the time, right? The people that don't, and I, I, I have never been on the road, but the biggest thing about recruiting is you have communication with high school coaches that are known to have top level talent. And that coach says, Hey, have you thought about this? And that's how they get involved. And Gary Pinkle had such strong relationships that he was getting his two major places he was getting recruits from were Ohio, from being at Toledo, and Texas, because they had a lot of Texas uh, assistant coaches that had strong relationships with uh, Texas um, Texas high school coaches, and they, they started getting involved in the conversations early. They were getting like the third or fourth best athlete instead of the sixth best, best athlete in Texas. Um, so that really shows that commitment to the relationship side. And I think that's always interesting, like the Missouri head coaches getting some some good recruits and 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 closing a little bit of the of the borders of of St. Louis. I've always felt that if uh, Missouri athletics, especially men's basketball and and football, can get the top 80 percent of D1 athletes out of the St. Louis metro area, and then fill in at some other places in the South and even in Texas, you'd have a top 25 team every year. But they're going to Alabama. Um, Bradley Beal is from St. Louis. He never went to Missouri. Um, I'm trying to think who the other player was. There's um, been multiple players that leave St. Louis and go to other more nationally prominent places where if the University of Missouri, especially basketball, just got the best players out of St. Louis, they'd have three really, really good players to build a team around and then just have to fill in the rest. So Gary Pinkle did that, and and I think that um, Eli Drinkwitz, the new Missouri head coach, is trying to do the same thing and got a couple of really good recruits and trying to um, steal one out of East St. Louis, Illinois. That's a top 200 wide receiver that has them in the mix as well. That uh, East St. Louis, I think that's where Darius Miles mm-hmm. uh, played his high school yep. ball, and uh, I had a friend that uh, that played up at Elgin, or he was on the team at Elgin, and they went to the uh, state championship or the you know the state tournament, and uh, just got slaughtered by that East St. Louis team. You know, it's uh, but I, I think they refer to that as a bunch of grown ass men. When you know there's that kind of slaughtering in high school basketball, and that's the type of team that uh, you know employs, and I say that facetiously, uh, a guy like Darius Miles is a high school. Well, kid. when you when you look at basketball, and especially uh, a basketball can cost you nine dollars or ten dollars or twenty five. It's not very expensive, and as long as there's a basketball hoop somewhere nearby. It is a wide-ranging sport for multiple people across the globe, and especially in the United States. Um, base, Major League Baseball is always trying to get the inner city uh, activated and try to get, but you have to buy a bat, and you have to buy a glove, and you have to have a field, and those aren't readily available in a lot of places, no matter what you do. Um, and all sorts, of, all sorts of sports are trying to get more of the urban community involved in their sports to get those athletes um educated about their sport and possibly get more people involved but basketball is the easiest because it's the cheapest and when you get east literally across the river from st louis and even in downtown st louis and around that area there aren't many options that are just sitting in the street or are readily available for you in your neighborhood so it goes back to the whole thing of if you want to get out of here Athletics is a great way to do it. And what's the easiest sport to pick up? Literally, it's basketball. I can pick up a ball, practice almost year-round anytime I want to and not have to be on grass and swinging a baseball bat or um, getting on shoulder pads and, and trying to get better on that front. So rough neighborhoods can produce some pretty rough rough and tumble kids, and that's why um, St. Louis and East St. Louis, Illinois – 
have rec- have put out some pretty darn good athletes is that is literally their livelihood and the way that they see themselves getting out of bad situations. Is that a recruiting battleground between uh, the University of Illinois and Missouri? No, you know what? East St. Louis is like Florida. University of Florida gets East St. Louis kids somehow. Um, it should be um, because they're really close to each other and they're on the border and they, they have two – well, one really good coach. I don't think Consul Martin's going to be around after this year. Um, but Brad Underwood's at Illinois, and he's trying to get those athletes. And um, St. Louis University is a private school, and they're starting to get some top-level recruits. Um, after Travis Ford left Oklahoma State or was fired by Oklahoma State, he went to St. Louis and got some high-level recruits and hasn't even put a top-25 program together. But um, it's a very national, especially on the basketball front, a very national recruiting base. A lot of people send um, – their their uh, scouts. I would, what I want to say. Their recruiters to East St. Louis for um, basketball tournaments and and uh, and there's a lot of recruiting that happens there. What about the other side of the state? Uh, Kansas City, Missouri. Does I, I, obviously I think that the Kansas basketball program has a, a little bit of a higher stature, but I don't know if that necessarily means a stronger foothold on the other side of the border. There. Uh, Kansas City, Kansas is the East St. Louis on the other side of the state. So there's a lot of a lot of stuff that happens. So Shane Ray went um, was from uh, Kansas City, Kansas, and then went to Missouri. He had a tattoo of an arrowhead on his chest, and then got passed over by Kansas City and picked up by the Broncos in the draft. Um, not really. They have uh, uh, some decent football programs that um, can produce some athletes like. Tony Temple used to be a running back for the University of Missouri. He's from Kansas City, Missouri. Um, Blaine Gabbert was from Missouri. Um, I think he's from Missouri. Maybe he was from Texas. And um, some decent players, but it's definitely not as fertile. And Kansas, all honesty, doesn't really recruit Kansas all that much. They're more national. Um, Kansas State and Kansas compete for those players. Um, but the University of Missouri hasn't has way more of a stronghold and presence in St. Louis than it does in Kansas City, even though they're the exact same distance apart. How does Wichita State figure into all of this? Wichita State without Greg Marshall was to be seen, but Greg Marshall was, I mean, he got he does get a lot of Kansas kids into the program, and then is an ultimate developer. Uh, like Landry Shamit w- went to Park Hill, um, which is in the Kansas City area, and then left after two years, and everybody was really surprised. And then come to find out that Landry Shamit just really hated Greg Marshall's way of doing things and wanted to get out of it and get into the NBA. But he was a big transfer guy before, even when they had to sit out. Um, and he's the like the Gonzaga before they became a national recruiting base, where he would get. Um, somebody that had a slightly odd physical attribute but still had skills and would and work with those skills and put them in their offense. And Greg Marshall is an ultimate, you know, try-hard guy. It was defensive intensity, and we'll figure everything else out from there. Um, so he got he always went after the the try-hard guys that were still skilled enough to hang with the best of the best. Shane, I think that when I was talking about Texas, I neglected to mention that I was in the state of Texas last week, and in addition to catching some baseball games, the final ones for the Indians, uh, we attended the Texas State Fair uh, at the Texas State Fairgrounds. So, you know, everything (laughs) deep fried, the Ferris wheel, and just, uh, you know, I've been to fairs before, but I've never been to the Texas State Fair, and the Cotton, you know, it's Uh centered around the Cotton Bowl. You could see into it from the Ferris wheel at the fair. Uh, I know this from the experience, you know, from firsthand experience, and I think that next year I'm going to have to make my Texas trip uh, concur with the state fair and the Oklahoma, Texas game at the cotton bowl. So uh, I, my dad, when I went to college at Missouri, my dad got promoted to a managerial position within his company. And that was based in Texas in Dallas area. So I actually got to go 
to a Cotton Bowl game in the Cotton Bowl, which if you do not understand sports and you don't know that the Cotton Bowl is a historic site, is a terrible seating experience in sports. I think that they made the seats for generations ago, 100, 100 years ago, people that were 5'4", because when you sit down, it's like your knees are in the seats, but knowing that that history is there and that um, this rivalry game is as big as it is, was played there for so many years. I got to go, actually, and I'm sorry, it wasn't the the Oklahoma-Texas game. It was actually the Cotton Bowl before it moved to Texas Stadium was actually played in the Cotton Bowl. I got to go see that. And I think at one point it was Arkansas and Missouri playing in the Cotton Bowl, and we got to go see that, which is pretty cool. Outstanding. And that's just one of those iconic uh, places. You know, we also took the ride past uh, Dealey Plaza Mm -hmm. on the way down there. We went to the stockyards out in Fort Worth. We did the whole tourist thing, uh, you know, culminating with a couple of ball games at the Globe Life Field there in Arlington. And, uh, you know, special moment after the season, the game and the season had concluded. Uh, A lot of Indians fans didn't want to leave. You know, it was uh, sentimental, and you could make that argument, you know, for an attachment with the team in any given year, but I think that there was more to it with the name change coming up. In addition to Oklahoma, Texas, Utah relevant for the somewhat <laughs> Utah titled podcast, Boise State at BYU. Boise State uh, ruined the perfect season for Utah State. Can they do it to another mid-major from the square state? And Boise State, it's, they're, they're tough to figure out because I think they were too when they beat Utah State, they were at two and two. That took them to two and two, and then I think they won last week to three and two. But BYU and Utah State played, and that was—it's a rivalry game, and that was super tight. I thought after that Boise State loss that it might be a letdown. So who knows? I mean, Boise State is one of those programs when you talk about how do they get the players that they get? They they get California kids to go up to Boise and and play some really good football. I think BYU is well coached. I think we've talked about how um, they have this recruiting thing down. They have a system and they know, you know, what kids are going on missions and when they're coming back and who, how they need to fill. And I, I think that they're they're going to uh, take care of business. And at least I hope they do because it'll put a little more shine on, on the program that they've built and the hard work they put in. And it'll be on a national stage because I think it's going to be on ABC nationwide, if I'm not mistaken. I was actually just looking at that. And if I could just pontificate (laughs) uh, my way, it will be on ABC at – see, I I hesitate with what time zone to offer. I'm just going to say 3.30 Eastern time because you're in mountain time and I'm in mountain standard time but not mountain daylight time, which coincides with Pacific daylight time. So 3.30 Eastern time it is. I should probably just give mountain time because, you know, of the whole, you know, suitable yeah. for you. If you're, if you're in Utah, you're going to watch it at one thirty. There you go. There you go. That's Jade Koenig, my man in Colorado. I'm Jeff Rich. This has been Not Suitable for Utah with Shane Koenig and Jeff Rich. All right. Thank you, guys.